So Sunday. Sunday was cool. It was the last of our six-part prophecy update series. We're overlapping a little bit with Leviticus as we're coming here to the end of Leviticus, and the last several chapters of Leviticus are prophetic, and so we let that bleed into the study. And um, we had a little technical difficulty, so I don't know if you all know this, but at home, we were not able to live stream. We weren't even able to get the recording of Sunday morning up until like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So I am speaking to you at home, but I'm also telling all of you, if you missed Sunday morning because of our technical difficulties, I want to encourage you, find an hour, get a cup of coffee or a tea, find a comfortable corner, and go through it. Because we covered a section in Leviticus that is, I think, so vital, so important. And you know, when I say things like that, it's not because I had something special or important to bring. If I thought that my job was to be witty and come up with things to teach, uh, this church would have been over years ago, okay? It is the Word of God. And so when I encourage you to go back and listen to something, if you missed it, it's because it is the Word of God, and it's what He has to say to us and what He shared with us on Sunday, which was convicting for me and for those, I pray, that, that heard it. We are now in Leviticus 27. So that was last Sunday. Um, this Sunday, we're in the in-between Leviticus and the next book, which your Bibles call Numbers, but that's not the original name. Uh, it's In the Wilderness. And so we will head into the wilderness, but not on Sunday. Sunday, we're going to take a little pause in between the two books, and we're going to talk about, well, values. We're going to talk about the values of our fellowship. We're going to go back. We're going to do kind of a, an in-house Sunday morning newcomers fellowship for newcomers and old-timers alike and take that opportunity to restate some values and to go through some things. And there will be Bible teaching involved in that as well. There has to be. But um, if you are new to the bridge, Sunday morning is a great time to come because we're going to talk about a lot of different things that are uh, inherent principles of our fellowship. I'm going to cover those things and, and take a little, like I said, a pause from the, through the Bible teaching. And then next Wednesday, I believe, we will launch into the next book. But let's turn one last time to the book that the Jewish people commonly call Vayikra. Vayikra, then he called. Based on Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Vayikra, then he called. And Leviticus, as we have covered it now, 27 chapters, covers an entire month's worth of instructions. Yes, we've been at it a bit longer than that. But instructions for priestly officiation, uh, the people's purification, pure consecration for the children of Israel. But it ends now with kind of its own section, I gave you that outline before, a four-part outline, and the last chapter is the last part of the outline, personal valuation. Personal valuation, and it's a strange place to put this chapter, I would think, from a human fleshly perspective. It's curious here. Traditionally, I told you when we first opened up Leviticus that it's the first book that Jewish children are taught. Now, that was surprising to me to discover that. But they will go straight to Leviticus first and teach through all of the things that we have been studying over the last few months. And you might remember I told you at the time that they would take a drop of honey and drop it down on the first page of Leviticus so that the child learning could lick that honey off and, and have a, a sense, an expectation that Torah is sweet and that this is a good thing that they're getting into. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And as a honey guy, I can attest to that. Psalm 19, verse 10, They are more, your words, your commands, your precepts, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. And I hope you've tasted a little honey on every page. But I also recognize, we have recognized that in Leviticus there's an aftertaste of blood in the sacrifices and the offerings that span the entire book. So while there's a sweetness here of God speaking and all the words of God pouring forth from his mouth to his people, there's also that, that sense of the blood. This is the bloodiest book in the entire Bible. 
Why? Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And God was establishing all the way back then with Israel the, the significance and the value and the worth of the blood sacrifice that ultimately would be fulfilled in Jesus. And so we can say, even if someone else says, you lost me at Leviticus, we say, ah, but he found me in the blood. So it's a sweet, bloody, holy book packed full of the precious words of God. And as I was saying as I began, Leviticus 26 for me seems like a nice stopping point for this book. Because Leviticus 26, if you look back at it, you remember the, the headings, and we studied through it last week, blessings of obedience, penalties of disobedience, and it even ends in verse 46 saying, these are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Boom, done, drop the mic, we're finished. Chapter 27, why is this here? And especially as we get into it, which we will, you will see it's... it's it's different, it's unique, it's, it kind of stands apart. And so there are scholars who try to stick it somewhere else or believe maybe it was added in much, much later, maybe in the post-exilic age or something. It's, it's utter foolishness. Conservative scholarship puts chapter 27 right here, right where God spoke it. And I agree with that. It is a bridge chapter, if you will, to the first 10 chapters of what we call numbers, but in the Hebrew it's bamidbar, which is in the wilderness. So this is the last chapter of Leviticus, but the first 10 of numbers, he continues on uh, final teachings, final instructions as the people are, as we might say, uh, preparing to get ready to be fixing to depart. God gives them everything they need before they even leave. But chapter 27 as with every chapter in the Bible, bears its own intrinsic value. And that's where Leviticus ends, with personal valuations. Let's see if we can understand this together. Verse 1, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years, even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 60 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it be from five years, even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels and for the female, 10 shekels. But if they are from a month, even up to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male and for the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest, and the priest shall value him. According to the means of the one who vowed, the priest shall value him. Huh? <laughs> valuation. The word valuation, note this, there are a couple of Hebrew words here that's really good to just know the, the definition for. Valuation is erekka, erekka, and it is financial estimation. So it is what you would think, it's the, the person's financial value, their financial worth. Here's the thing about this word erekka. It is a word that is used in the slave market for pricing out slaves, so in the culture of the day, they would speak of the erka as that money that was to be paid when you're purchasing a slave or an indentured servant. And that's the word that he uses. He shall be valued according to your erka, your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. Pricing out a slave. Okay, so that even makes it a little more strange for us. When you hear the phrase in our culture, Net worth. What's the first thing you think of? Money. Because that's how we value people. <laughs> that's how we say as far as the length of a lifetime. Now, you might even say, no, I don't value people based on their money. And I get that. We don't in relationship. But that still is our culture's way of saying someone has made it. Someone has accomplished it. Someone has succeeded in it. Someone has retired from it. 
What is their net worth? You want to buy a house? They want to know what your net worth is. What do you have in the bank? What are your liquid and your non-liquid assets? And that does not speak of Cokes in the fridge. What are your properties or your credit or your financial resources or your investments or your so-called securities? What is your net worth? Brothers and sisters in Christ, can we just get this clear that it's all an illusion? That it's not true? That none of these things by which we count value and by which we call net worth, none of this stuff is secure? It can go away like that. Whether it's $1.90 or $1.9 trillion, which is a number I can't even fathom. You realize that a trillion is a million billion? We might as well just call it a, 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 I don't even have a word for it, a quirk. I I mean, it's crazy. A million billion, and we're doing 1.9 trillion, 1.9 billion, million billion in this recent package. I'm not not getting into it. I'm not, don't worry. I'm just telling you, everybody's like, or at least some people are like, this, this will save the country. It's air. It, it's, it's not value. It is not value. And, and what I bring home in terms of a paycheck is not value, not, not true lasting value. And it certainly has nothing to do with the value of a person. It's just the slave trade. You know, what we put in the bank what we make what we have it's wood hay and straw and it is going to burn and you know the old saying you can't take it with you you can try but it ain't going anywhere you cannot take it with you you want a net worth you want a value that lasts build your life first and foremost on the foundation of Jesus Christ there's your value That's where it starts. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, and Paul is talking here uh, metaphorically, if you build on the foundation, which is Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he says, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it's revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality, we might even say the value, of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he's going to suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And every time I read that, I just get a picture. There's going to be some little guy just barely making it in the rapture and his pants are on fire. He says, I just made it through. All the rest, there's so much that we put focus and energy and effort into, and it's worthless on an eternal scale. Gold, silver, precious stones do not refer to precious metals or jewels in a portfolio. Paul is talking about eternal values, the real values, how how we are made worthy in Jesus and what our life is truly worth if we're investing in eternal things. If we're not investing in eternal things, you can build up a massive amount of money. You can be the George Soros of the world and have nothing. That is not where our value comes from. Jesus, I love the way he talked about this. In Luke chapter 12, and I'll just read the story to you. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, (laughs) you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus says, so it is the man 
who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Down in verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You can't buy it. You can't purchase it. You can't even invest in it other than giving yourself to the work of the kingdom. Your Father has chosen to give it to you. And so Jesus says, Sell your possessions. Give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's economy. God's values. God's standard measure. It's so different than ours. He measures who we are on the scale of eternity. Where are you headed for eternity? That's where the worth begins. And then what are you doing toward and for eternity? That's where the value truly is. He measures us by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And as I said before, you can't take it with you, but you know what? He can take you and me unto himself. And that's value. And that is worth. But there are those who believe they can measure up. I got this. So let's think about this for a moment. What are these valuations all about? How does slave pricing involve Israel? Why would God even use slave pricing? There's a very interesting study by Gordon Winham where he goes into this and he talks about it. He shows historically what the slave prices were in the marketplace and how similar they are to what God prescribes for the valuations of his people right here. So you might wonder, well, why does he do that? Listen, there are two ways of understanding this chapter. I was dead set on one way until I realized what I, what I believe now it's really saying. And we're going to try and break this down, but I want you to understand that this is application. So there are two ways that this could apply. The, the interpretation is it is what it is, and we just read through it, and, and they're, they're valued based on these certain amounts, and each person is, but why are they valued, and what did that mean to the Israelites, and what does it mean to us? What's the application of it? Well, there are two different ways you can draw out application and I think both are legitimate because both are biblical. But it's the second one, I think, that is the one where God is drawing us, wants us to think. So, but the first one is simply this, difficult vow in verse 2. Note that, when a man makes a difficult vow, that word, and you might want to note this, is yapli, Y-A-P-L-I, yapli. And it it is used to talk about something that is surpassing, extraordinary, hard to do. You could even translate yapli, something that is beyond one's ability or power. So we would say he's in over his head. He's made a vow. It's a rash vow. We, we could say. And this one interpretation. It's a rash vow. Kind of like the vow people make when they say, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I will devote my life to mission work in Africa. And then he gets you out. And you go, um, how about I write a check? <laughs> you know, how about I do something else? You know, and we start to backpedal because, man, I just jumped in too far. I got into the deep end and I wasn't intending to. A rash vow where we get out ahead of ourselves. We make rash vows all the time, don't we? Intending to do things. I'm not talking about being false or, or lying or I'm just talking about you make a commitment to something and then you realize you really can't follow through with that promises that we just can't keep and so one view of these first eight verses specifically is that if someone makes a vow or an obligation they can't keep this is the payment plan to get out of the vow this payment releases them from the vow they make a vow to the Lord let's say on a, on a particularly religious joyful praiseworthy Sunday morning, you say, Lord, I'm going to just give you all my children. And then you realize, well, then who's going to do the housework? So you can buy back, <laughs> you can pay a price to cover that rash vow. And there are some very serious good Bible scholars who they say that, that's what this is all about. It's a payment plan. But understand this, the prices are not cheap. You make one of these vows, you get out ahead of yourself and you want to buy yourself out of it. As with other biblical warnings, there are those who say this is here to discourage vows in the heat of the moment. 
Vows that are going on beyond ourselves. Like Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. You should be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Don't blurt. Don't jump out ahead of you. Think it through. Don't make commitments you can't keep. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. That's always really good to remember, by the way. God is in heaven. You're dirt. Okay? You're on the earth. And he says, God is in heaven, you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5, it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay, or as Jesus said. In fact, turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and let Jesus put kind of the final word on this. The whole idea of the rash vow and making commitments I can't follow through on. And, and I, again, I have done that in my life more than once. And it's never with a bad heart. It's never malicious. It's just we get so excited that we want to do something and then we really can't do what we said we would do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And I know that to be true. It does what it wants to do. The hair, white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything, Jesus says, beyond these is of evil. You're going to get yourself into trouble. You make a rash vow, and back in Numbers, or, or sorry, Leviticus chapter 27, you make one of these vows, there's only one way out. you got to pay for it. you got to try and buy your way out. Think about this now with me. In Leviticus 27, Yahweh gave the Israelites a chart of valuations. Again, Gordon Wenham, I mentioned to you, he points out it's close approximation to the human valuations in the slave market itself. So here's what it looks like, and you can read along with this in verse 3. If you happen to be a male, 20 to 60 years old, 50 shekels. Now that's by a weight of silver, talking about pure silver, so the same weight of 50 shekels in pure silver today is 890 bucks. 890 bucks 3,500 years ago. So this is a lot of money. This is not chump change. So for a male, 50, so 890 bucks. For a female, 30 shekels, $534. Oh, so the female is worth less than the male. Stay with me. Age 5 to 20. So we're talking young people. By the time they hit 20, they're ready to go out to war. We'll see that more in, in coming studies, Lord willing. But age 5 up to 20, the childhood through the teen years, a male is worth 20 shekels or valued at 20 shekels, $356. So you commit your son again to the Lord, but then you say, ah, I, I, that, that was rash. I shouldn't have done that. $356 to get out of the vow. For a female, it's 10 shekels, $178. For a one-month-old to five years, little kids, five shekels. Five shekels, 89 bucks. For a female, three shekels, 53 bucks. For those who are over 60, they make a rash vow, need to buy out of it, 15 shekels is about $267 for the male, and 10 shekels, $178 for the female. Why? First of all, why is there a difference between the male and female that God calls out? Can I just tell you something? And it's important to note this in this culture. God makes a very clear distinction between male and female. Our culture does not. Not anymore. And in fact, if you've read recently, it actually passed the House in 2019, H.R. 5, the Equality Act. The Equality Act is an act put forward by the 
House of Representatives, that goes back and puts new language into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that language makes it a crime to discriminate against any kind of LGBTQ, gender identity, any of these issues. And we're talking about punishable by law if you don't agree with that perspective. Here the Lord, even in this very simple statement, makes a very clear distinction between male and female, as he does throughout the whole Bible. The, the changes they want to make, this, this equality act, literally would make the Bible um, illegal. What's taught here is illegal, according to that. So if that passes the Senate, this book becomes illegal in the United States of America. And you do your own research on it. You can look at that. That was a side note. Why is there a difference here? Why are the men valued more than the women? God, listen, he wasn't valuing the individual. He wasn't saying Dean's worth more than Lori Beth. What he's saying here, you guys can work that one out on your own time. <laughs> what he's saying here is he's recognizing the ability in the culture by age and or by gender to pay. That the man is going to have more resource to pay than the woman. Therefore, the man is valued at a higher expense, a higher charge than the woman. It actually is recognizing where people are at in the culture. It's very compassionate. It's recognizing that little kids, one to five years old, you're not going to make that incredibly high because they can't produce. They can't come up, you know, they can't, they can't make that payment. Mom and dad are going to have to make that payment. So it's, it's less for the one to five-year-old than it would be for the over 60-year-old. It's less for the over 60-year-old because they're probably not out on the, in the field as much as the 20 to 60-year-olds are. And so he's, he's looking at individuals and saying, based on their ability to pay, I'm going to put these valuations on different people. Does that make sense to you? So it's God recognizing what, what the culture was doing. But listen, do you know what these charges really are? Do you recognize what's going on here? There's a word for it. Redemption. This is about redemption. These are valuations that are paid by a person to redeem the person. Look over at Numbers 18. Skip ahead there for just a second. Numbers chapter 18. So you're only one book over. And verse 15. Numbers 18, 15. Which reads, Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. What do you do with the firstborn of the clean animal? You sacrifice it. It's the Lord's. You give it to the Lord in holy sacrifice. The firstborn son you don't sacrifice because God does not do human sacrifice, whether from the womb or after being born. He doesn't do human sacrifice. And so the firstborn son, there's a redemption price. As to their redemption price, note this, verse 16, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 Giras. It's the same thing that we just read in Leviticus 27. It's the valuation of a month old to age five. And so God is being completely consistent with all this. It is the price of redemption. So again, one view is if someone makes a rash vow, a rash commitment, they can pay a redemption price and they can redeem that, whether it's themselves or their children or, or some other commitment that's been made, you can redeem that back by paying the price of redemption. That would be okay, but I don't think that expresses the heart of God. Because this vow that we're talking about can also be marvelous. It can be wonderful. And you might want to add this to your notes. When a man makes a difficult vow, the word yapli, the NASB translates it difficult vows. The King James translation says when a man makes a singular vow. Or the ESV says when a man makes a special vow. This word yapli also means marvelous, wonderful. It means distinguishing. 
So this could very easily be saying a special vow. You want to make a special vow to the Lord. How does that work? Okay, a man says, I'm not a Levite, so I'll never be able to serve in the temple, but I want to devote my life to Jesus. I want to devote my life to the Lord and to the service of my fellow Israelites, but I can't, I'm not a Levite. I'm also not a firstborn son, so I don't have that special devoted connection. A woman says, I'd really like to devote myself completely to the Lord. I may never be able to do these other things that some of the men can do and the priests can do, but I want to give my life in devotion to him. And the Lord says, here's where you start. You pay the redemption price. You give that as a special offering, and it's a lot. It's not cheap. You give this as an offering to the Lord. I want to offer my life. The Lord says, okay, let's start with you putting forward this price of redemption, the wonderful vow. And what I like about that is the wonderful vow begins with a price that is paid. Think about this. If there was a cover charge for church, would you pay it? If we started saying, budget's a little tight, so we're going to start charging $450 for every Sunday service and $375 for Wednesday nights, would you stop coming? Now, those of you who said no, thank you. (laughs) And we're never going to do that. Obviously, we we wouldn't do that. But, But what if there was? What if there was a cover charge? What if it was $10 to come in the door every Sunday morning? What if it was $17.50? Pay that for a movie, no problem. What if there was a cost to actually being here, being a part of the fellowship, being a part of the church? The question really comes down to, what's it worth for you? And God taps Israel just like he taps you and taps me in one of the most difficult places for us to let go of, and that is our money. In fact, he starts there. You want to be devoted to me? Great. You happen to be a a man between the ages of 20 and 60. Maybe you're an Ephraimite. And so you're not part of the Levites. You want to be fully devoted? Fantastic. $889. Let's start there. And you pay that redemption price as an act of devotion, as you're making now a wonderful vow, a marvelous vow, a very special vow. I was thinking about this today, and there's an old Keith Green song, probably my favorite Keith Green song of any of the songs he ever wrote. And he wrote so many great ones. Some of you may remember this. It's called, I Pledge My Head to Heaven. I just want to read it to you. Check this out. First verse, well, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And I ask no man on earth to fill my needs. Like the sparrow up above, I am enveloped in his love, and I trust him like those little ones he feeds. Second verse, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel, though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I would surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Third verse, no, no, chorus. He sings, I'm your child, and I want to be in your family forever. I'm your child, and I'm going to follow you no matter whatever the cost. I'm going to count all things lost. Lives of complete, utter, absolute devotion. And then the third verse. And Keith Green was a father. He wrote, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned. I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice. And to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. I make a vow of of devotion to you. And it recognizes, even back in Leviticus 27, there is a high price for redemption. The highest price that was ever paid in terms of worth and value by the blood of Jesus. We can never fully redeem ourselves, but he did. He paid the redemption price. What are you willing to pay? What are you willing to to give up to the Lord that you might be even more devoted to him. You want a life that is of value to God? Actually, you want to know what your value is to God? I can tell you right now what your value is to God. Look at the cross. That's how much you matter to God. That's your worth. I tell my kids this. If you are ever feeling low on self-worth, 
If you're ever feeling like people don't care about you or love you or you just don't matter in this world, you look at the cross of Jesus. That's how much you matter. That is huge. That is eternal. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And by the way, that word yapli, that can be translated difficult vow, but it can also be translated wonderful, marvelous. It comes from the root word pala. Pala, which means wonderful. And from pala, we get a name that is spoken two times, only two times in the Hebrew scriptures. The name is wonderful. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and his name will be called Pele, wonderful. Counselor, mighty, God, eternal, father, prince, and peace. Not just prince of peace, prince and peace, because all of those names are character traits of Jesus. But his name is wonderful. There's the other, only other place that it's in the Hebrew scriptures is when Samson's father, Manoah, is talking to the angel of the Lord, and he says, what's your name? And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is Pele? Wonderful. It's Jesus. The name of the redeemed one is Pele, the devotion of Jesus. I was sitting back there thinking during worship, this is wonderful devotion. The wonderful devotion of Jesus Christ to you, to me, that's my value. There's my worth. It's amazing. It was no rash vow, by the way, when Jesus said in John 19, 30, it is finished. Because he did everything necessary. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. What is Jesus worth to you? And would you devote yourself to him? And this becomes, listen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this becomes a daily challenge. How devoted am I really? How devoted am I willing to be? Because I guarantee you, each and every one of us here tonight can be more devoted than we are right now. So what's the next thing? What's the next step? How can I draw nearer in devotion to the Lord? Now, he's gonna get into the valuation of personal items. In fact, over the next several verses, it'll be animals and, and, and homes and fields, anything that someone wants to give to the temple, there's a value placed on it. So that if they give it to the temple, like some of their field, they give it and then there's hard times or difficulty or they really need to get it back, they can pay that value and they can redeem the field back. So check this out, picking up in verse 9. Now if it is an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord, any such that one gives to the Lord shall be holy. And he shall not replace it or exchange it, a good for a bad, or a bad for a good, or if he does exchange an animal for animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. <laughs> Which means if you say, you know, I, I, I gave you this ox, um, but I really want to give you that ox. That's fine, you can. You're just going to end up giving both oxes. You don't get to trade out and get one back. So the Lord's saying, when you give it to the Lord, it is holy. It is now set apart. It is unto the Lord. If, however, it is any unclean animal of the kind which men do not present as an offering to the Lord, then he shall place the animal before the priest. The priest shall value it as either good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. What does that mean? A donkey. Let's, let's go with a donkey, because that's an unclean animal. But a donkey could be of use to the priest, maybe not in the temple or in the sacrificial system, but for transporting things back and forth. Might be good, hey, I, I, I've got a donkey, I want to give this to the service of, of Israel. And the priest looks at it and says, okay, your donkey, we probably value that at around, and they put out a price. And if the man comes back a week later and goes, oy vey, I, I need my donkey back. That's fine, this was the price, add 20%. And you can, you can redeem the donkey back, okay? I, John Corson tells a, a story. I, I wasn't going to share this, but I will. Why not? Uh, I think it's really funny. He said, you know, a man goes and, and he has, um, he has a, a lamb, has a, has a sheep, and the sheep gives birth to two lambs, and he's so happy. He's like, oh, 
This is marvelous. This is wonderful. Two lambs. We're going to give one to God and we're going to keep one for ourselves. Because what a blessing. We'll just keep the one. That's all we were expecting. Anyway, we'll give the other one to the Lord. And so he puts the lamb in the pen with their mother and he goes to bed that night. The next morning he gets up, he walks in there and he finds that one of the lambs has died. Goes in and tells his wife, oh, it's terrible. God's lamb died. (laughs) It's what we do, right? You know what's interesting to me as you read about the offering of animals here is even an unclean beast could be holy. That's interesting. See, because as we talked about in Leviticus, the whole idea of clean and unclean is to learn how to distinguish, to make a distinguishment, or to distinguish between what is holy and what is not. But an unclean beast can be made holy. Donkeys, as I mentioned, donkeys are unclean animals. Exodus 34, verse 20, you shall redeem the lamb with a lamb, the first offspring from a donkey. Because you can't sacrifice a donkey, so instead of sacrificing a donkey, you would sacrifice a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, then you shall break the donkey's neck. It's an unclean animal. However, a donkey could be used in the service of God. And if it was given to the priest, the donkey was holy, set apart for service. One such donkey was most holy. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even a donkey can be holy. That's remarkable to me. Set apart for singular service to God. And so they're dealing with with donkeys and different kinds of animals. What about us? You don't own a donkey. What can you give to the Lord? Maybe you can give a colt. That would have been funnier back in the 70s and 80s when Dodge had the Dodge Colt. It was, it was a car. There are, all kinds, <laughs> there are all kinds of things that we can give to the Lord. All manner of things. But note as he's talking about what's good and what's bad. Don't trade in what's good for, or what's bad for what's good, you know, when you give to the Lord. So you could say, let's just not, I mean, give to the Lord, but don't give clunkers. If you're going to give to the Lord anything for the service of of the church, give something of value. Think about what Jesus gave for you and for me. Verse 14. So that's animals. Verse 14. Now, if a man consecrates his house as holy to the Lord, I like that, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Guy says, I want my house to be of service to the Lord. You guys need a place for priestly meetings. You need a place to do whatever. My house is yours. I want it to be dedicated. Yet if the one who consecrates it should wish to redeem his house, that is to buy back, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may be his again, 20%. Let me just ask you, is your house dedicated to the Lord? You ever thought about it that way? You ever stopped and said, let's make this a place of ministry. Let's dedicate our home to the use of the Lord. Our fellowship, this church fellowship, began in a dedicated house. And then it moved out to a dedicated barn, a holy barn, if you will. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can give your house to the work of the Lord. Sounds like a commercial for small groups. I think that's good, Jake. You should use that. You can give your house of service to the Lord. You can give animals, cars, you know, whatever, transportation, service to the Lord. You can devote these things. Verse 16, again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the fields of his own property, then your valuation shall be fields or shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it. A homer of barley seed at 50 shekels of silver. So however much seed it takes to, um, you know, sow a field, that's the value of the field. And that's how they would price it out. It says in verse 17, if he consecrates his field as of the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. So if he's saying, I'm giving you my field, it's the year of Jubilee, then full valuation price. If he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee. And it shall be deducted from your valuation. 
if, one, if the one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, wants it back, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it, will may, so it may pass to him, 20%. You want the field back? That's fine. You can do that. God's not going to hold you to it. You just got to add 20% in offering. Yet if he will not redeem the field but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. That is, he can't buy it back from the other guy. And when it reverts in the jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord, like a field set apart, and it shall be for the priest as his property. Or if he consecrates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not part of the field of his own property, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of jubilee. He shall on that day give your valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of jubilee, and you remember from Sunday, every 50th year, in the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. So you want to devote some amount of field to the Lord? The value is measured in terms of, of seed for that field and then years to or from the Jubilee. It's amazing when you start to read these things that God's release, remember Jubilee is about the release of all debt, God's release touches things we would never even think of, never even realize. God's word is so far-reaching in our lives. When we start to apply it, we, it starts to hit us bit by bit. Oh, that applies here too. And so even in the fields, the jubilee, it, it, it all finds application. The point here, as he's talking about this release, is not to falsify or misrepresent an offering of land to the Lord. It needs to be evaluated and then valued, and, and that's the amount. Land given to the Lord, don't falsify it. Does that sound familiar? That bring to mind a story that would take place 1,500 years later? Land that is sold and brought to the Lord? You may remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold a property. A bunch of people were doing it. Barnabas did. Barnabas sold his property, gave the whole thing to the church, the fledgling church, and it was a glorious time. And people were just saying, hey, I don't need it. My value is Jesus. It's not in this land. And they're selling properties and selling fields and selling stuff and giving it all, laying it at the feet of the apostles. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a nice chunk of property and they conspire together. Hey, hey, we'll, we'll tell them we're giving them all of it because that'll look better for us. But we'll, we'll just hold back a little for us. Remember what happened. They come before Ananias first gets called in by Peter. Peter says, how can you lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias dropped dead. They take him out, bury him. And as the guys who buried him are coming back, Sapphira comes in. And they ask her the same thing. Did you sell the field for this amount? She says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was, that was what we got. She drops dead. Amazing story. And in fact, Acts chapter 5, verse 11 tells us, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. That story happened because God established 1,500 years earlier that if you're going to give to the Lord, you don't fake it. You don't falsify it. You don't pretend. Man, I remember as kids growing up in church and they'd pass the metal plate. And the tricks that we would play, you'd flick it, you know, and go, plink. To make it sound like you put money in. Don't mess with the Lord. Don't play games with the Lord. Don't say you're giving more than you're really giving. Don't, don't mess with that. Great fear came over the whole church. Honestly, I think the church probably could use a little more holy fear today. Continuing on, in verse 26 now, God turns to things which are irredeemable. These are things you cannot redeem once given can't even buy it back with the price. Verse 26. However, a firstborn among animals, which, is, which as a firstborn, note this, belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it, whether an ox or sheep. It's the Lord's. But if it's among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it, 20%. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. So the first thing that you cannot redeem is the firstborn because it's already God's can't buy back what belongs to him in the first place. In verse 28, actually, do I want to say more on that? Yeah, well, no, I do want to say more on that. <laughs> Listen, firstborn of animals must be redeemed for the redemption price, right? 
um, or, or could not, they, they could not be redeemed. Let me get my head clear. They could not be held back because they already belonged to the Lord. You can't redeem them back because they're already his. And this was the point I intended to make. Don't look for credit when you bring your tithe to the Lord. It's already his. The idea of giving a tithe, whether it's a check or a text or however you do it, according to God, the tithe is already his. This is not something, you know, so as with the firstborn animal, it already belongs to him. You can't say, I'd like to redeem that. Well, you can't. It's his. The tithe is already his. That's, that's the way it works. Now, I know we play all kinds of games with that. And we don't really buy that, but it's his. And in fact, according to God, holding back any amount of a tithe is actually stealing from him. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Why you gotta go there? Because devotion comes with a price. And we have to come to the point in our faith walk of recognizing there are things that already belong to him. Things that he says, that's mine. I'm gonna keep 10%, you keep the other 90 that's God's standard. Well, keep going. Verse 28, nevertheless, anything which a man, and don't worry, I'm not done talking about tithing. <laughs> nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has of man or animal or the fields of his own property shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. That's the harem. And the, and the harem is devoted to destruction. It's set apart we're talking about a ban on plunder in warfare. And we're going to see this come up. Twice at least. In fact, over in Numbers 21, verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Atharim, then he fought against Israel and some of them took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord. Here's a special vow. If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Hormah comes from Cherem. Cherem is devoted to destruction. Hormah means put under a ban. So they didn't take any spoils of that war. We'll see it again in Joshua chapter 7 with the whole story of Achan and his breaking heart. The fact that he <laughs> plundered Jericho. The God says everything in Jericho is under a ban. You don't take any of the spoils of war. You go in there, you wipe them out, you, you don't take anything out. But Achan saw a few things, a few choice items and buried them under his tent. And all Israel suffered for it because he violated the ban. So that's what that's talking about. Verse, verse 29 No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment. So the Lord underscores something here that goes all the way back to the Noahic covenant, which is for all people of all time, Genesis chapter 9, and that is the death penalty. It is a God-ordained thing, a life for a life. If a person takes, murders another person, takes their life, their life is forfeit. By the way, remember, that doesn't mean the person can't be saved. It just means their life now is forfeit. And according to Torah law here in Leviticus, you cannot redeem someone on death row. If they are guilty and they are going to be executed, no redemption price for that. Verse 30. Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, <laughs> he shall add to it one-fifth of it. What does that mean? If you don't want to tithe, that's fine. Add a fifth to it. You can keep your 10%. You just got to pay 20% to do it. I love the, the, the thinking of God. That's fine. You don't have to give your 10%. Just give me 20 and we're good to go. <laughs> that is what this, 
this describes here. And interestingly, the very last thing that God takes up here in Leviticus is the tithe, tithing. Verse 32, for every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute become holy. In other words, you try to exchange it, now you're gonna give two animals instead of just the one that would be the tenth or the tithe. And he says it shall not be redeemed, and God is setting in place here a standard of a 10% tithe for Israel. Now, if you begin to add up all the other requirements financially for the Israelites in, in the kingdom of Israel, it came up to about 30%, 28 to 30%. So taxes and everything else for for, uh, supporting the temple and the work of the priests, but there was the tithe that was the standard and it was a tithe of your fruit and it was a tithe of your vines and it was the tithe of your animals. Every tenth belonged to the Lord. He established it here and my friends, I don't believe he ever took that away. Now please listen to me for a second here. I say this without judgment because I have no idea what anybody gives. And that's one of the great graces back 17 years ago, and I'll talk about this on Sunday. We decided Pastor Rick and the shepherds will not know what people give. That way I can talk as convicting as I want to and not feel bad about it. And we can be honest about what the word of God says rather than dancing around who are the big givers and who's not giving anything and who doesn't feel like they can afford it and who feels like they can and all of that. Listen to me. Here's the thing, and I want to say this really clearly. When Christians argue over whether tithing is an Old Testament issue or a New Testament issue, it's not a matter of differing interpretation. It is a matter of the heart, period. And it took me 35 years to get that in my life. Tithing is not a matter of biblical interpretation. It's a matter of the heart. And I've had the conversation with people who say, well, I, don't, you can't tell me to tithe. I mean, that's not in the New Testament. Well, Jesus said, actually, you should pay your tithe and you should be compassionate and gracious and, and just and all these other things. Jesus never denied the tithe. The apostles never said, don't do that. They never said, nah, you don't have that. That, that was a little crazy back in those Old Testament days. Listen, it's a heart issue. Someone says, well, I don't want to be legalistic. Don't be. Give more. You don't want to give 10%? That's fine. Go 11. Go 15. Do 20. I mean, you can, you don't have, you're not stuck. <laughs> in other words, in the giving, God says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Do you want that? Would you like a blessing in your life until it overflows? And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm talking about trusting in the Lord for all our provision. Do you want to know that he's got you? Then I will rebuke, he says, the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And I love that because, and I've experienced this in my life, that when you trust the Lord, what he will do is he will take care of the devourer. What's the devourer? You blow a tire. God provides for it to be covered. One way or another, and I can give you story after story after story of the provision of the Lord, miraculous, amazing, and our recent uh, work in the adoption of Christopher is no exception. How he has provided for that has been stunning. He will not let the devourer devour you. The problem is we're on this side of it, and we go, boy, I don't Because if you're not tithing and you look at taking 10% right off the top of your income, that's a chunk. That's tough to do. But God says, God says, test me. See if I won't answer. See if I won't take care of your needs. And if you want more support for that in the New Testament, read Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I know that sounds real good in a sermon, in teaching, but my friends, all these things will be added to you from the mouth of Jesus. Do you trust him or not? And what we're talking about here is value in devotion. Do you want to be devoted to the Lord? 
Do you want to increase your faith and your trust in him to believe that he really is who he says he is and, and to walk in a, a faith life that is dynamic and exciting and sometimes a little scary? I don't know how he's going to cover this one. Listen, vow to tithe and pay your vows. Just vow to tithe and pay your vows. If you've never done it, try it. Try really trusting him. See, he knows that one of the last strongholds in many of our lives is the pocketbook, the bank account. He knows for us it's like, you, now you're talking about my provision. Yes, and it came from who? Who's the provider? Do we trust him? I saw a bumper sticker years ago. I love this. I, I wrote this down. Tithe if you love Jesus. Any idiot can honk. And the truth is, when we debate over how much we should give to the Lord or devote to him, we sound like a bunch of honking horns. It is not the point. The point is not, you know, getting right down to, okay, I can do this much, or I'll do that much, or I'm under grace, so I don't have to do any of it. Hey, do you trust the Lord or not? Do you want to see him act dynamically in your life? I encourage you, trust him. Tithe. Just do as he asked. See what he does. See, the truth is, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Listen to me, true love begins with loving God. And we often think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapters, how I'm supposed to love other people. No, if I don't love God, then I can be all kinds of philanthropy and it means nothing. It begins with my love for him. True love is loving God and Loving God means trusting him to do what he said he would do. That's also where true value is found, human value. Paul said, Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, <laughs> those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And what Paul gets at and what I believe Leviticus ends with is the true value is Jesus. The true redemptive, wonderful devotion. That is Jesus. Leviticus 27 is perfectly placed because it all comes down to how much do we value the Lord? The value of a consecrated life. Is my home affected? Is my family affected? Are my personal possessions caught up in this, in this devotion? Lives that are holy to the Lord. Remember Leviticus 11.44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. And through all this, God is calling us out of our foolish flesh. And he's saying, I can, I can make you more devoted I can make your faith more alive and exciting and vibrant. I can quicken you from death to life. I can certainly build up your faith. And so Leviticus 27, 34, the book ends. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. And I'll give John the closing word for tonight. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves those born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Amen? Father, I pray that you would bring conviction to all of us. Truly, Lord, the conviction of devotion because as I, I said and I am processing all this with my brothers and sisters there are aspects of all of our lives which can be more devoted to you and that is not burdensome 
That is not heavy. Lord, you say, come unto me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your, your, your commands are not burdensome. They're not difficult. You're not inviting us, Lord, to a white-knuckle ride, but to peace and rest and security and value. Oh, Lord, value in a life following after you. So, Jesus, would you bring that gentle, loving conviction into our lives and with any of the things we've talked about tonight where we can adjust, where we can offer more of ourselves, more of what we have by way of trusting and loving you Lord, show us how, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.